Hello folks and welcome to Bloody Violent History. Tom here. We've had a bit of a move about with our episode scheduling. Our end of series summary will now come out on the 8th of November. Today we're going to wind you down with one of Jamie's Bloody Bite monologues on a most delightful topic, interrogation and torture. A subject that stains pages of our history books and unfortunately is still used by autocratic governments and vicious individuals today. We see it every day in the news. So here goes. And remember, the best way to support our podcast is to pass on an episode to a friend. Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites, where I get to moonlight and perform memory exercises while Tom's away. And today's subject is interrogation and torture, blood, sweat, and screams, the dark art of extracting information. Because knowledge is power, and regimes will do anything to acquire that knowledge and maintain their power. And they do it in many ways, breaking codes or breaking people. And it can be a grim subject, but I make no apologies for peering into the dark side, because if we don't do it, we never get to appreciate what we're fighting for, and we certainly never recognize what we're fighting against. Hence the bloody bites that I did on death squads and infamous prisons. So as I said, today's subject is interrogation and torture, and so often it strays into the torture element. And when we discuss that subject, I think of people like Violet Zabo and Odette Churchill, who were tortured by the Nazis during World War II. I think of Sergei Magnitsky, beaten to death by Putin's people in a Russian penitentiary in 2009. I think of the torture chambers, multiplicity of them that are being discovered throughout Ukraine when Russian forces retreat. Because everything has heritage, everything has lineage, and you can trace what Russian forces do today all the way back through Stalin to the Second World War and even to the Akrana, the Tsar's secret police back in the 19th century. You want to know about Putin's torture camps, well, yeah, there's evidence that his regime is involved in torture. Uh, they engage in such things as pulling gas masks over people's faces and putting CS gas into the tubes or burning particles in. It's called the elephant. They engage in something called the meat rack, so like the rack of Elizabethan and Tudor England, which involves dislocation. They engage in things called the pit, throwing people into frozen pits and keeping them there during winter months, or at least until they die. And that's similar to what they have done to Ukrainian soldiers, forcing water into their boots, making them walk through the snow until they get frostbite and their toes or their feet have to be removed. So there is heritage there. So humiliation is often part of torture, it's often part of interrogation. But I'm going to start with the big one, and that's going to be crucifixion. Because so often it's about not only cowing the victim, 
but cowing the observers, the population who have to witness this. Of course, everyone mentions the Romans, and crucifixion goes back a long way in Roman history. Go back to 71 BC, when Marcus Licinius Crassus, property spiv, went and crucified 6,000 rebellious slaves along the Via Appia during the Third Savile War, the, the Spartacus Revolt. Never trust a property speculator. But that was a great way not only of putting down revolt, but also of demonstrating Rome's power and authority. And so often torture is used in that way. Look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Anyone who's walked up the Via Dolorosa uh, to the site of Golgotha, which was on a Jewish stone quarry, will, will feel that journey, will feel that extraordinary atmosphere. The public execution is what the Romans did. In AD 70, General Titus uh, managed to execute over 10,000 Jews by crucifixion. They were trying to escape the city of Jerusalem that was under siege, and they were executed, crucified in novelty positions and novelty fashions, probably making flower decorations, and certainly inverted. That was a favorite of the Romans, but that was to terrify the population, the zealots and the sicarii and the uh, worshippers of the Sabbath who had gone in to worship Passover in the city. So tens of thousands died, but certainly at least 10,000 were crucified on the palisades and trees around Jerusalem. It must have been the most terrible sight. But other cultures, other regimes also use crucifixion. The Mongols used to crucify people to wood donkeys, uh, the, the people they despised, who they thought weren't good enough horsemen. That was the ultimate insult. And they went on to perform so many barbarous acts, which, of course, I will detail uh, later. But Moulay Ishmael, the Sultan of Morocco in the late 17th century, early 18th century, he too used to crucify people to doors and get them to be eaten by wild dogs. So it went on everywhere. The Japanese crucified British prisoners of war and allied prisoners of war. It was a way of cowing and demonstrating authority and, of course, imposing, inflicting, agonizing death on the victims. I mentioned the Mongols. They had a habit of boiling people alive. And that, too, was in so many cultures, embedded in so many regimes around the world. India boiled people alive. Japan boiled people alive. The Holy Roman Empire would boil counterfeiters and murderers alive in, in burning oil. So it, it went on everywhere. And you think it's died out? Well, it hasn't, because in this century already, in the last 20 years, there's been evidence that the Uzbek authorities in Uzbekistan prisons, uh, people have been boiled alive. They found the tidal marks on people's necks. It, it's the most terrible practice, but it still goes on, and the evidence is there. As if boiling and crucifixion isn't enough, you can go on to impaling. And again, the Mongols did that. Uh, so many people have done that. I mean, Vlad the Impaler managed to impale 20,000 Turks. 
in a forest of stakes to try and fend off Turkish attack and appall and cow and terrify his Turkish enemies, the Ottomans who are invading that part of Romania and Transylvania. Across Europe, there was a practice called the witch's billy goat, which was essentially lowering prisoners on ropes uh, so that a pyramid stake would enter any orifice, the mouth, anus, or wherever, uh, to cause maximum damage and pain and horror and appall the onlookers and teach them a lesson, uh, put them in their place. So all these measures were known and used throughout history and throughout the world. Then there, of course, there were dictators and despots who were quite used to using animals in terms of torture and interrogation, uh, quite often just to terrify the prisoners. Uh, you, you got someone like Lucius Macedonian, the Roman general, who in the second century BC used elephants to crush deserters in his army. Uh, he wasn't alone. I mean, horses have been used to kill people time and time again. You have people pulled to pieces by horses. The Mongols did it. The Oprigniki did it. The secret police of Ivan the Terrible. Uh, they made a habit of it. It was used all over Russia. So it wasn't geographically specific. I mean, even as late as the 18th century, you had someone like uh, Robert Damien who tried to assassinate Louis XV of France. Uh, he ended up having his flesh stripped off with red hot pincers and was pulled to pieces by horses. Not to be outdone, even in the 20th century, it appears that President Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines' father was pulled to pieces by water buffalo after the Second World War for collaborating with the Japanese and his body parts were, were hung in the trees. But horses, elephants, they weren't enough for the world's psychopaths. Again, rats have been used in so many aspects of torture and interrogation. You think of Room 101 in George Orwell's 1984. That was just the start. So many regimes have used rats. Again, the Japanese used them on allied prisoners of war in the Second World War. But they go back a long way in terms of their use. Even in the 16th century, you had the Dutch resistance leader, Dietrich Sonoy, using caged rats to put on people's stomachs, and the cages were heated up so that the rats would try and eat their way through the stomach. They weren't alone, uh, because Stalin's regime at the infamous Special Facility 110 of the Soviet Union uh, outside Moscow, Sukhanovskaya Prison, they put rats in buckets and put them over people's buttocks so the rats would eat the buttocks. And this goes on and on. You can see it throughout history. And if rats were not enough, then, of course, you get insects as well. And uh, they've been used throughout history to humiliate and cow and be part of the interrogation techniques and torture techniques used against prisoners and victims. There was the infamous scaphism where a prisoner was tied in a rowing boat with another rowing boat put on top of him, like a sort of shell, and he was covered in honey with his feet and hands sticking out. 
and uh, the maggots and the worms and other insects would end up eating him. And it could take 17 days. It was the most terrible torture. And throughout history and throughout the Roman Empire, uh, such as under Emperor Maximilian, you had Christian saints being covered in honey and eaten by insects. Uh, this continued throughout history. It's the oldest trick in the book. Stalin's secret police would take people out into the forest, find and fields, and find anthills, and insert tubes into various orifices, and allow ants and maggots and worms to crawl in and eat people from within. And it's not surprising that at Special Facility 110, 35,000 prisoners went in and very few came out. It was known that hardened generals of the Soviet army would end up screaming and crying for their mothers. It was the most terrible institution. And it's so strange that so many institutions that started as a convents and monasteries end up as, as sites of torture under later regimes. The same happened in Salzburg, for example, in the war where a convent was turned into uh, Gestapo headquarters. Well, Special Facility 110 under the Soviets was actually St. Catherine's Monastery before Stalin's brutal regime commandeered it for their own purposes. So we've had all these sort of animals involved. The Romans, of course, use horses um, not to pull people, but to drive stakes into them, pull stakes into them, uh, pile drive pointed stakes into their bodies. So this one went on uh, throughout history. Uh, it is absolutely hideous. But I think we've done enough about animals, and I think we've made it clear that humiliation is really part of the process of torture and interrogation, or at least part of the way point towards final death and execution. And, you know, talking about that, talking about humiliation being used, I mean, look at the Vikings and how they used to perform both a torture and execution called the Blood Angel, where an axeman would attack the back of the victim as he was kneeling and pull the lungs out through the back. So to produce wings, hence the blood angel. Of course, the British and others had hanging, drawing, and quartering. I mean, for several centuries in England, that was the punishment for traitors, that traitors were dragged on a hurdle. They used not to use a hurdle, but they would be dragged behind a horse, and quite often prisoners would die on the way, so a hurdle ended up being used, and it was part of the humiliation, dragging them through the crowds. They were then brought to the scaffold, hanged by the neck for a minute, so they were semi-asphyxiated, cut down, and then castrated. Um, they had their intestines pulled out, showed to them, and then thrown on a fire. And eventually uh, they were beheaded and quartered, and the hearts taken out, and the quarters of the body put on different parts of London, uh, taken round town to show all what would happen. Of course, with the gunpowder plotters, Guy Fawkes managed to jump and uh, broke his neck before all this happened to him. The person who followed, Robert Keyes, who was the quartermaster of the plot, uh, he tried to do the same, but the rope broke, so he was fully conscious when it happened. So these were the sorts of terrible uh, things that could occur to victims, uh, to prisoners uh, under those regimes.
you then got strange variations on the theme of humiliation. I remember the poor German officer, the young German officer who was captured by the Soviets uh, in the Second World War, and they forced him to play the piano and said, we'll shoot you uh, when you stop playing. I gathered he managed to continue to play for 21 hours before he collapsed, and they took him off and shot him. But these are all the sorts of things that regimes, soldiers, um, autocratic governments can inflict on those they capture, those who fall into their hands. And humiliation is the key. Another thing that regimes, the more autocratic regimes and secret police states do, is condition their prisoners, wear them down, before interrogation starts. It's not difficult. The key aspects of it tend to be uh, deprivation. Deprivation of warmth, deprivation of sleep, deprivation of food. And again, there are so many examples of that. In terms of deprivation of warmth, I think of Solzhenitsyn and his fellow Zeks, his fellow prisoners in the Gulag, uh, taking turns to lean against the one hot pipe in the entire prison camp to try and get a bit of warmth in the middle of a Siberian winter. I think of Sergei Magnitsky, uh, the, the captive Putin's regime, the tax lawyer, who had to sleep in a cell with no bedclothes and no glass in the window, no heating. It was the most terrible experience. And so many prisoners have frozen to death over the years. In Special Facility 110, Stalin's interrogation prison, they also had boiler rooms, of course, where the, the heat was turned up so no one could have any sleep and their comfort was deprived there. It's not just depriving warmth, it's depriving sleep. And again, in Special Facility 110, uh, there are records of prisoners being kept awake for 20 days on end. Uh, this is how you break people down. And white noise, overhead lights being on the whole time, um, having other prisoners in cells, all these things can stop a prisoner getting any kind of sleep. And that's before the guards even come, come into the cell and kick you awake. Or you're kept sitting on a chair uh, and not allowed to sleep. Uh, this has been used from the Nazis to the Soviets onwards. Then there's deprivation of food. And we've all seen how depriving people of food can reduce the will to resist. In Tudor times, they called it pinching. And there, there are records of groups of Jesuit priests being starved to death in jail, um, just given no food at all. We know about the Nazi concentration camps. We know about North Korea. In North Korea, prisoners who go out to sow seeds in the field, the, the seeds are mixed with human excrement to try and stop them uh, eating the seeds. But that doesn't prevent them uh, picking them out and eating them. That's how hungry, that's how famished people are. There have also been uh, eyewitness accounts of people eating corpses in North Korea because the ground is too hard to bury the corpses. So prisoners just simply uh, eat part of the corpses. Uh, they get whatever nourishment they can from wherever they can uh, in between eating grass as well.
So all that is part of the conditioning process of interrogation in the worst regimes around. Then there are the stress positions. And stress positions are interesting because they've been, again, used throughout history to break down the prisoner. In Special Facility 110, that infamous Stalin jail, people were interrogated sitting on upturned stools. So there was always a risk of penetration by the leg of the stool. And that goes back a long way. I mean, you can go back as far as the Spanish Inquisition and find the use of the heretic's fork, which was a device that put prongs into the chest and the neck and forced the prisoner into a devotional position, a stress position, in which he or she would have to stay for hours. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And so it's that discomfort, throwing the prisoner off balance, that's always been seen as so useful. And you can see that again in regimes throughout the world. In Sukhanovskaya prison, that facility 110, there was a thing called the Sukhanovskaya swallow, where a towel was forced into the mouth and put under the feet. So the prisoner was kept in that stress position for hours upon hours. In Latin America, and those fascist regimes, it was called the Macaw's Perch. In North Korea, it's called the Pigeon. And that also includes elements of Chapado, uh, holding the arms behind the body and raising them up on a rope, uh, part of sort of dislocation of the shoulders. But these stress positions are vital. And it's no accident that in special forces training today, it is stress positions that are used to try and break those uh, on escape and evasion exercises who have been captured. Um, this is what is used all those forms of deprivation, all those forms of stress positions, and of course the psychological mind games in special forces training. I know of people who have had their heads put on railway tracks and they think a train is rumbling towards them because the track vibrates and it's a train actually on another line, or a truck wheel being pushed against their heads and uh, a truck being revved. So they think the truck is uh, reversing on top of them when in fact it's just a, a wheel there on its own. I knew someone who was strapped down, had ice pulled down his back, and but he was being told that it was actually razor blades and he thought that the melting ice was blood seeping out. So all these games can be played uh, towards gathering information uh, during the interrogation technique. So conditioning and stress positions are absolutely key. Now we've gone through a lot of torture, we've gone through a lot of um, basic interrogation techniques and conditioning, and there is a long history, as I said. You can go from today's torture used by Russian soldiers in Ukraine all the way back. You can look at the more extreme forms of torture, whether it's the brazen bull that so many historians mention, although some question whether it actually existed. But King Falaric in Sicily apparently had this, this bronze kettle in which he would put prisoners and boil them alive, and the trumpet sounds they would make, the screams they would make, would be distorted by the different pipes coming from that device. 
in China, right up until the 20th century, you had evidence of the death by a thousand cuts, the execution of pulling knives at random from a rack that had a body part written on it. And he would then cut off that part, slice off that part of the body. And there was evidence, there's historical evidence of families being allowed to bribe the executioner to go straight for the throat. And it's not that far removed from the hangman of uh, England right up to the sort of 18th century, where hangmen were paid by relations to um, pull on the feet of the condemned man, the hanged man, uh, to end his life more quickly. So this has gone on for a long time. But between the death by a thousand cuts and the brazen bull, there have been so many other forms of torture and interrogation used by so many terrible regimes throughout history. And of course, you have the Nazis and their use of electrocution and beating. You have the, the Stasi in East Germany playing tricks with people's minds and driving them mad. And that, they didn't even have to be in prison for that. They just moved pictures around, changed the clocks, made strange phone calls, threatened them. And it drove people absolutely to distraction and mental illness. The KGB, too, had a terrible reputation. And it's no coincidence that so many of that the leaders of these secret police were also committed torturers, whether it was Yezhov, the bloody dwarf, or Lavrenti Beria in Stalin's NKVD, the secret police, whether it was Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, the Gestapo torturer, di directly responsible for the deaths of 14,000 people, who then went on to work in Latin America as a freelance torturer and interrogator and death squad leader. They're, they're all psychopaths. They all have a history. And so it goes on. What is so strange about all these people? What is so odd about these regimes? is that they never seem to realize that being decent, being nice, being kind, offering aid and succor is often more rewarding, that you get more out of prisoners than you do if you beat them or if you torture them. There was an officer in Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe who tried to persuade him that actually what the British were doing was simply offering cigarettes and cups of tea and beer and that actually got so much more information uh, out of people. Yes, there have been stress positions and, uh, you know, the, the same kind of techniques used in history uh, to wear people down. There have even been the use of drugs, for example. Uh, so often, uh, different regimes have tried to use drugs. I mean, in Cardinal of the Kremlin, the Tom Clancy book, there you have a prisoner floating in an isolation tank being given drugs at the same time. We all know about sodium pentothal and sodium amytal, all these barbiturates that are used to lower people's resistance, to make them more talkative. I mean, way back in the 1940s, George H. White was using liquid cannabis, TD, in spiked cigarettes to, to break down the, the will, the resistance of a drug dealer. Um, and implicate Lucky Luciano, the mafia chief. And he was quite successful, except his patient, his victim, his prisoner, kept on falling asleep with the cigarettes. So using these techniques 
has often been more useful than actual physical torture. And even the KGB tried it on Oleg Gordievsky uh, when he was planning to defect or be smuggled out of Russia. So drugs, narcotics have as long a history as anything else. But I think I've probably exhausted this subject. Yes, I could talk about Operation Condor and the uh, torches used by the Latin American regimes or Operation Phoenix, the use of torture against uh, Viet Cong suspects and the use by the Viet Cong of torture in so many cases um, against their victims. It's really to show that torture and interrogation has gone on throughout history. It has gone on for millennia and it probably won't stop. And I said that regimes need to understand that being decent uh, can often pay better rewards, can often achieve greater results. Well, Putin's Russia is a case in point. Uh, were Putin and his country to abide by the rules and avoid invading countries, they might actually be quite successful. But all the while, their paranoia takes over, their brutishness takes over, and they shoot themselves not just in the foot, but eventually in the head. And I said at the beginning that the spirit is often more powerful and will eventually beat the sword. And so that takes me to the postscript. And I think it's an important one because it shows that the spirit of resistance can survive and that people can withstand torture and ultimately these despotic regimes will fall. I'm going to end with a poem. It is the code poem of Violet Zabo, the SOE agent who was captured by the Nazis and terribly tortured by them. Her code poem has become famous. It was used, obviously, in the film about her, Carve Her Name with Pride. And the head of codes, Leo Marx, wrote it. And it means a great deal to me. Many people will know it. But it means a great deal to me because Leo allowed me to use that poem in my first thriller, uh, Deadheaders, in 1997. So here goes. The life that I have. The life that I have is all that I have and the life that I have is yours. The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have, for death will be but a pause. For the peace of my years in the long green grass will be yours and yours and yours. Violet Zabo and three of her SOE companions were executed by machine guns in the execution alley at Ravensbrück concentration camp in February 1945. We owe them so much, and we owe their generation everything. Until next time on Bloody Bites, goodbye. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. 
This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.